for the past couple years as I've gone about my days, I'll either see or hear something that, you know, I think would be a good sermon illustration, you know, and I would hear it, I'm like, oh, that's going to be good. However, the only thing is, is that I would eventually forget the illustration so I could never use it. So this summer, I started jotting these ideas down in my notes app on my phone. And well, about a month ago, I was studying for ordination when something unusual happened. Our next meeting was going to be on some theological questions related to the church. And a major aspect of this area of theology has to do with the ordinances of baptism and communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. And when we refer to baptism and communion as ordinances, we simply mean that we practice them because Jesus ordained or commanded us to. So as I was looking into what Scripture has to say about the ordinance of communion, an unusual event happened. I immediately had a sermon outline pop into my mind. Now, for those of you who have ever preached, uh, know how much of a blessing from God this is to have a sermon outline literally just immediately come to mind. Because a lot of the time, at least for me, the most strenuous and stressful, nerve-wracking part is trying to figure out how to structure the sermon so that it flows well and it makes sense to the audience. So fortunately, I had started the practice of writing these things down. And so I immediately pulled out my phone, wrote it down, uh, and wrote down the outline. And I thought, okay, this is good. You know, I'll have this for years down the road whenever I at some point preach on communion. And I've known for a while now that I was going to be preaching today. However, just a couple weeks ago during staff meeting, we were discussing whether or not we were going to have uh, communion today since it's the first Sunday of the month. And, you know, since Pastor Paul was going to be on, gone on the men's retreat, which is where he's at right now, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, are we going to do it or not? And Pastor Paul, he looks at me and says, uh, yeah, we're going to do it, and I think I'm going to have Wes lead communion. And this shocked me uh, for two reasons. First of all, uh, I've never led communion, and anytime we do something new, it's really scary, uh, especially something as sacred as the Lord's Supper. So, if I mess it up, blame Pastor Paul because he made me do it, okay? He forced me to do it. The second reason I was shocked is because that sermon outline that the Lord had given me a month and a half ago wasn't for years down the road, but it was for today. And so, I thought, since I'm going to be administering communion, I thought it was fitting that today I would preach on the Lord's Supper, and during that time of study for ordination, uh, I was in 1 Corinthians 11, which is where we're going to be today. And as I looked at the passage, the word that stood out to me was examine. When we participate in communion, we move into a time of examination. It causes us to slow down and gives us the opportunity to examine three areas. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, we'll see that the Lord's Supper moves us to examine the past, to examine the present, and to examine the future. The past, the present, and the future. So we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, but first let me give a little context to what's going on here. So in this passage we're about to read, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, is furious 
because the Christians in Corinth are abusing the Lord's Supper. And some people are arriving early to the feasts that these early Christians would have, and they are getting completely full to the point of gluttony, and they're getting drunk. And so when others who arrive late get there, there's nothing left for them to partake in, so they miss out on the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is absolutely uh, infuriated about this, and he makes his disapproval very clear. And then he goes into his teaching on the Lord's Supper, which is where we're going to pick up. And starting in verse 23, it reads as follows. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the first area the Lord's Supper causes us to examine is the past. And more specifically, we're to examine the past event of Christ's death. And verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So when we take communion, first and foremost, we're to look back at the sacrificial death of Christ. And it's interesting to note the phrase that Paul uses to start this section on the teaching of the Lord's Supper in verse 23 because it's actually a formulaic saying used to signify that what's about to follow was actually a tradition that had been passed down, okay? So he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he uses the formula again to recount the story of the resurrection where he says, For I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is the reason why these formulaic sayings are important. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around A.D. 54-55. However, he first visited the city of Corinth even earlier on his second missionary journey. And in Acts 18-11, it says he stayed there for a year and a half, and this was around A.D. 50-52. And we actually know this because there's a man mentioned in Acts 18-12 named Gallio or Galio, and he was the governor of the region of Corinth. And actually, this is pretty amazing. In the early 1900s, archaeologists discovered what's called the Delphi inscription. And Delphi is a city just right near Corinth. And these fragments are a letter written by the Roman Emperor Claudius from around AD 51-52 to none other than Gallio, who is named as the governor of the very region Luke refers to in Acts. So Paul was in Corinth around A.D. 50, 52, 
which is when he first shared the teaching of the Lord's Supper with the Corinthians. But remember, in verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So during his visit, he shared with the Corinthians the teaching on the Lord's Supper that he had already received beforehand. So Paul didn't come up with it himself. It was passed on to him earlier by other Christians. So therefore, this teaching about the Lord's Supper was going around years before AD 50. And Christ's death was around AD 30. So we're talking about less than 20 years from his death and resurrection. That means the disciples who were there at the Lord's Supper were still alive. They were still around. They were eyewitnesses who could say whether or not Paul got his teaching wrong. But they don't. So the Lord's Supper isn't some later invention by the early church, but it was actually practiced from the very beginning, the very birth of the church, and it can be traced back to Jesus himself. So this is beautiful because we see extra-biblical accounts confirming what the Bible has said. So Paul then shares what the Lord said on the night that he was betrayed. When he had given thanks, he broke bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after this, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So when the Lord Jesus established communion, he wanted his disciples to be reminded of him. He wanted them to look back and examine his death on the cross. And this, this ordinance has been passed on from generation to generation in the church for over 2,000 years now, the last 2,000 years. And as his disciples, he wants us to remember his body and blood, which were broken and spilled for our sake. And that's why we take communion. It's a constant reminder of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And we do it in remembrance of him. Whereas baptism which we're going to be celebrating a couple baptisms in a few weeks, is a one-time ritual. The Lord's Supper, communion, is a continuous ritual that we repeat over and over and over again because it's a tangible reminder of the, pr- the price that Christ paid to cover sins and to grant us salvation. And one of the reasons he commanded us to continue to practice it is because we are prone to forget, are we not? So in youth group, we're currently studying uh, a series on the story of scripture and the purpose of the study is to see how the bible is one redemptive story through history it's not made up fairy tale these are actual historical events that happened through history with jesus's death and resurrection as the climax of the whole thing and the more i study scripture the more i see how the new testament really just picks up and carries on themes from the Old Testament. So this theme of remembrance is actually very prevalent throughout the Old Testament. Over and over, the Lord tells Israel to remember the time when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He continually points them back, I guess, back to this supernatural act of salvation so that they don't forget that he, or what he has done for them, and then turn away from his commands yet we know what happens. They forget. And they remember for a little bit, and then they forget again. They remember and they forget. 
They forget the mighty acts that God has performed in order to bring about their salvation. And this leads them to stray away and seek other gods. They forget their need for the one true God and his continual salvation. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's carrying on the biblical theme of remembrance. He's carrying that right on. And in the same way that Israel was to look back to God's mighty act of salvation in the exodus out of slavery in Egypt, we are to look back, remember, examine God's mighty act of salvation in the death of his beloved son. Another significant Old Testament theme in this passage is in verse 25, where Paul quotes Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And this is actually a reference back to the book of Exodus when God confirmed the Old Testament with Moses and the Israelites. And the Lord, he called Moses to himself to confirm the covenant. And then Moses had peace offering sacrifice to the Lord. And then Exodus 24, 6 through 8 says this. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So when it says Moses threw the blood on the people, I don't want you to have the imagery of what happens in like national championship games. After the team wins, they take the big Gatorade uh, uh, Thing and throw it over their uh, coach in celebration and just a big, you know, bucket of blood. No, what, what would happen is Moses took a hyssop branch, dipped it in the blood of the sacrifice, and then sprinkled it, splashed it on the people. An Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walkie, says this is called the blood of the covenant because it affects the covenant relationship by cleansing the recipients from sin. Blood is not applied, however, until the people again agree to obey the covenant stipulations. Thus, by Israel's commitment and by the cleansing blood for the elect, they are sanctified to God's service. So the sprinkling of blood upon them was a ritual to show and remind Israel that the blood of a sacrifice was needed to cover their sin and initiate the covenant with God. And Jesus is using the same language when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And although he uses the same language, he's talking about the new covenant that the Lord spoke of through the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. For from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. 
So Christ's death on the cross as a sacrifice for sin was the inauguration of the new covenant in his blood. He commanded us to participate in the Lord's Supper because he wants the bread and wine or juice to call to remembrance his saving sacrifice. And he wants us to slow down, examine the past, specifically his death. As Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. But the Lord's Supper also gives us an opportunity to examine the present. Verses 27 through 29 tell us what this looks like. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So when we come to the Lord's table, it gives us an opportunity to examine our current spiritual state. And this is the issue that Paul was taking up with the Corinthians. They were abusing Lord's Supper by being gluttonous, getting drunk, and leaving others out of the ceremony. And as a result, God was judging their church by causing some of them to get sick, and even some of them died. So by making light of the Lord's Supper, they were making light of the Lord's death. And this is, this is extremely offensive to God when we consider the length that he went to in order to bring about humanity's salvation. And their actions were reflective of their current spiritual state. Now these verses should cause us some pause before taking the Lord's Supper. We ought to examine our hearts honestly before the Lord. As we remember the Lord's death, we need to bring any sin before him that we've withheld. And as we hold the elements that represent his body and his blood It should remind us that there's nothing we have done that his blood cannot cover. His sacrifice is all sufficient for all time. And this is important for us as Christians because we can easily forget our ongoing need for Christ's sacrifice. Christians never lose the need for the gospel of Christ. Christians never outgrow Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if you feel like you've moved beyond this need, if you feel like you no longer need to hear the message of Christ's sacrifice on death, then you really haven't grasped this message. We've all heard John 3.16 a thousand times. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, have eternal life. Yeah, 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 blah, 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 I know that. But there's a reason why verses like these have become so popular and use so much. And it's because they're so good. They're so good. And that's one of the dangers of these kind of things is when we hear something so often that it just becomes normal and we forget what it actually means. So just slow down and take in what it actually says. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who is over all things, loves you with such an incredible, infinite, untainted love 
that he was willing to sacrifice his son in the most gruesome and humiliating way possible so that you would not experience eternal death separated from him in hell because of the evil you have done, but rather spend eternity in a relationship with him in perfect love, peace, joy, and without a shred of sorrow, pain, or death. Never do we lose our need for this message. And in fact, the longer you're a Christian, the more you should see your need for Christ's sacrificial death. You ought to become more aware of your current spiritual state and continually throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy and forgiveness. And this is what we call true repentance. Now, there's this one guy I've known my whole life. And he became a Christian really young, around six years old. And the better I've got to know him, the more I realize how much he forgets the gospel. I share the gospel with him all the time because I want to continually remind him what God did in order to purchase his forgiveness and his salvation and reconcile their relationship. And I'll literally tell him, God loved you enough to die for you. God died for you. That is insane. And at times he'll respond, well, maybe God loves everyone else that much, but not me. I'm too messed up. I've done too much wrong. And I have to remind him that Christ's blood is able to cover any and all sin. No one is too far gone. (laughs) But then there's other times when he's feeling pretty good about himself. He says, I'm a pretty good person. I'm glad Jesus saved past me, but I can handle things now. And then I have to remind him that God shows favor to the humble, but opposes the proud. And actually, due to his pride, he needs to be reminded of the gospel because Christ's blood also covers the sin of pride. But then there there are other times when he gets it. He doesn't fall into false humility, consumed in the pit of shame, and nor does he become overconfident and forget his need for Christ. As he examines his current spiritual state, in humble thanksgiving repentance, he's reminded of his current need for the gospel. He's been a Christian since he was six. Yet over the past couple years, I've preached the gospel to him more than ever because he continues to grow in understanding his need for the gospel. And actually, lately, I tell him some form of the gospel every single day, even multiple times a day. And you might be asking, how in the world do you have this much time to preach the gospel to someone that much? Well, the reality is, is I'm with this guy every day, all day, because I'm the guy. I need to hear the gospel every day. And the first person that you should hear the gospel from every single day is yourself. You need to be preaching to yourself this message of Christ's salvation for your sin every single day. I evangelize myself all the time because I'm quick to forget the gospel and my need for God's saving grace. And this is one of the purposes of participating in the Lord's Supper. It gives us time to examine ourselves 
and not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with others as well. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he's actually setting up his discussion about the division amongst the church surrounding the Lord's Supper that's in our passage. And one theologian says it this way, for members of the church to be divided into factions and despise others who partake with them of the one loaf is an abuse and contradiction of the Lord's Supper. It is an ordinance of the church. It cannot be appropriately practiced by separate individuals in isolation. It is the property of the functioning body of Christ. So if we want to have a good idea of our current spiritual state and where we're at in our relationship with God, we can look at our relationship with others, especially Christians, because Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And this kind of self-reflection evaluation is critical for spiritual growth, and the Lord's Supper gives us regular opportunities to examine our hearts. So as we reflect on the, back on the Lord's death, we're confronted with how sinful our hearts presently are. And the fact that we as Christians literally have God's Holy Spirit living within us, and yet still sin, honestly, is amazing <laughs> to me. But it shows that our hearts are naturally bent towards evil, sin, and rebellion. And this requires repentance. So as we hold the symbols of Christ's body and Christ's blood in our hands, we see clearly who we truly are. We have the opportunity to take inventory and bring anything to the cross that needs to be covered by the shed blood and broken body of Christ. And we're unworthy because of our unrighteous acts. But because of Christ's one righteous act, we are counted worthy and invited to the table. To his table. So when we come to the Lord's table, we not only examine the past in Christ's death, we also examine the present and our current spiritual state. And it gives us an opportunity to make sure we're in right relationship with God and others. And finally, participating in the Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to examine the future. And we've read verse 26 several times this morning, but we've left out the last phrase up to this point. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we examine the future during communion, we are actually looking ahead to Christ's return. And this isn't something that we typically hear when we talk about communion. And up to this point, you've probably heard everything that I've said about, you know, the Lord's Supper is a time to reflect on Christ's death as well as examine our own hearts. But this third aspect, it might be a new concept for you. But let me say that this isn't something that I came up with. And in fact, each of the four accounts recording the institution of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament bring out this idea of looking ahead to Christ's return. And we've seen it here in our passage when Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer to the future element of the Lord's Supper and what it points us to. So for example, Matthew records Jesus saying this after he gives them the bread and the wine. He says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That Jesus is telling his disciples that they will one day share this meal with him when God's kingdom has fully come. Until that time, he says, he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine. Therefore, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we can look forward to Christ's return when God's kingdom will come in its fullness and glory. And once King Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, he is going to be the one leading us in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus one day will lead us in communion. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus and the New Testament authors picked up and used a lot of the themes and imagery from the Old Testament. And when referring to this new wine in the new kingdom, it brings us back to Isaiah 25. So Isaiah 24, Isaiah's prophesying about the, how the Lord is going to bring judgment on the whole earth. Then, in 25, he tells what the Lord is going to do in Jerusalem. And Isaiah 25, 6-9 says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Isaiah tells of an end time banquet where there will be a feast of food and new wine and death will have been swallowed up. And those who waited upon the Lord for salvation will be present at this feast. And the Apostle John actually picks up on this imagery from Isaiah in Revelation 21. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things have passed away. So the Lord's Supper causes us to look forward to Christ's return because when he comes, he will usher in the fullness of God's kingdom, complete the new creation and it will be rid of all mourning, crying, pain and ultimately death. And this, this begs the question, though. If Christ died, which the Lord's Supper reminds us of, then how can he return? How can a person return and cause death to be no more when they lost to death? At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us how. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, thanks be to God, who gives us not a, not some, 
but the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we must not be reminded only of Christ's death. At the same time, we must remember that he's coming again because he has risen. Christ rose from the dead. And in fact, the death of Christ is meaningless without the resurrection of Christ. It's meaningless. And Paul himself says that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then his preaching is meaningless. Everyone's faith in Jesus is meaningless. We're still in our sins, and we are to be most pitied of all people. So praise God that we have reliable testimony of eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ recorded here in the New Testament. Praise God. Christ's return is the blessed hope of the believer. We look forward to complete freedom from sin and the joy, the joy of seeing Jesus face to face as our Lord and our friend. However, for the unbeliever, Christ's return is a matter of great concern. His first coming was one of a humble servant sent to save those who would trust him to save them from their sins. His second coming will be one of a victorious king returning to carry out his judgment on those still opposed to him. So when believers take communion, when we take of the Lord's Supper, it's not only a reminder of our salvation, of our need for salvation in a time of fellowship amongst us. It's also a proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers who are present. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when non-Christians are present, when the Lord's Supper is taken by Christians, they see a tangible representation of the gospel. We are proclaiming that it is true that Christ died for our sins, both ours and theirs, as well as it's true that he rose from the dead and will come again. Therefore, we participate in this ordinance until he comes. It gives us an opportunity to examine the future return of Christ. So now we know that the Lord's Supper is a rich ordinance that our Lord Jesus himself commanded us to do. When we come to the Lord's table, we move into a time of examination. 1 Corinthians 11 showed us that it caused us to slow down and gives us the opportunity to examine the past event of Christ's death, examine our present spiritual condition, and examine the future return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we participate in the Lord's Supper today, let's apply what we've just talked about. Let's examine these three areas and let the meaning of communion touch the depths of our souls. Let me pray for us.